one of my first thoughts I had when I was looking back out the window was, oh, I wish my wife could see this, my brother, my mom, my friends. If, if I could switch places with people, I would give them 15 seconds yes. of my window time, you know, switch places one at a time. And it would only take 15 seconds. You looking out the window, you would gasp. <gasps> wow. And, you know, and then you come back and you'd be forever changed. Welcome to another episode of ThinkBox Radio, a podcast inspired by Sears ThinkBox, the Innovation Center at Case Western Reserve University. Our goal is to share some of the magic that happens at the Case School of Engineering and to inspire your own innovations and startups. ThinkBox Radio is produced by Lillian Messner and sponsored by the Case Alumni Association. Now let's meet our host, Robert Smith, the former economic development reporter for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Smith, your host of ThinkBox Radio, and we're here with Don Thomas, one of the most traveled people you will ever meet. Don took a physics degree from Case into space. As a NASA astronaut, he's flown on four space shuttle missions and traveled 17 million miles in space. And really, if you've met him, you think he wants to do it again, like tomorrow. But what Don's really into today is future astronauts, who he helps recruit by promoting STEM in schools and speaking with engineering and science students at universities like Case Western Reserve. Don, welcome to ThinkBox Radio. Thanks. It's great to be in Cleveland. Great to be at Case Western Reserve again. I want to start right off by asking, why are you so excited about the future of space travel? We've been to the moon. The shuttle program is over. What do you see coming that has you so jazzed? Yeah, there's a lot of great programs coming up in the future. Uh, Right now, NASA's building a new rocket called Space Launch System. This will be the biggest, most powerful rocket ever built, bigger and more powerful than the Saturn V moon rocket that sent Neil Armstrong to the moon 50 years ago. And we'll have the capability with this rocket to to go back to the moon and also send astronauts to Mars. So in the future, we'll be launching this rocket a year from now. About five years from now, we'll be landing astronauts on the moon again. In possibly 20 years, rough timeline, we'll be going to Mars and landing astronauts on Mars. And those are exciting missions for me. And I wish I was young enough to be a part of them. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I don't know if young people realize it, uh, that they're being called this by space enthusiasts but like yourself, but I hear you call them the Martian generation. Yeah. The, what does that mean? The uh, astronauts going to Mars 25 years from now, 20, 25 years from now, are the young students in elementary, middle, and high school right now. So they're the ones that will grow up and be the astronauts, the first to set foot on Mars 25 years from now. It's not my generation of astronauts. So we call them the Mars generation, and it really is the future scientists, engineers, astronauts, explorers, you know, and that's why it's so important to get them interested in STEM and get them inspired to, to continue the journey. So I know you speak at a lot of schools. What do you see? Is there excitement still for space travel? You know, I got excited as a young boy. I was yeah. six years old, and I I watched the first American launch into space, and, and that got me going. I see that same enthusiasm you know, no less at all today than it was 60 some no years kidding. ago for me. So young students, uh, they love space. They love the idea of exploring and going to the moon, going to Mars. I think they want to be a part of it. So I, I see the same enthusiasm that I had. And I see that not just across the United States, but around the world, wherever I travel. You know, I wonder if some of the private companies have added to the allure, like a lot of our grads go to work for SpaceX. Right. And the kids are like excited about jobs like that. 
SpaceX uh, has an incredible following. You know, Elon Musk, he's a young guy, an entrepreneur, energetic, a, a great visionary. And uh, I think the, a lot of young students, you know, latch onto him and, and uh, he's doing a great job. He's pushing the technology and I think he's going to be a big part of of us successfully getting to Mars in the future. So, Don, you mentioned the uh, coming Orion missions, and in fact, they're doing work right as we speak over at NASA Glenn, getting at that Plum ship ready. Yep. What is going to be different about these missions than the Apollo missions and the shuttle missions? You know, the shuttle was designed only for Earth orbit. It's a big, heavy vehicle, weighed a quarter of a million pounds, you know, unfueled, and it was only capable of orbiting the Earth. You know, this new rocket, the Space Launch System rocket and the Orion capsule will be launching. That'll have the capability to go to the moon, which we did during the Apollo, but it'll also have the capability to go deeper into space, onto Mars and even beyond that. It could. So it's going to have more more capability, more launch capability. The Orion capsule will hold four to six astronauts. It'll have that capability where Apollo had three. It's a little bigger capsule, a little more room. And uh, you know we'll have the capability, again, just going to the moon and, and deeper out into space. When we're talking deep space voyaging, what's the, what's the next big innovation we need? Is it fuel? Is it oxygen? You know, that, that's a great question. One of the, uh, the key problems for, for going to Mars right now is the radiation exposure. Really? For the astronauts. Like, we, we've got rocket technology. We can get to Mars. We have rovers on Mars. We've sent spacecraft there. But sending astronauts to Mars, it's going to be about a three-year round trip. And uh, in Earth orbit, where I spent my time on the space shuttle, we're yeah. protected by the Earth's magnetic field, which protects us from a lot of the bad solar and cosmic radiation. Once you leave 1,000 miles from the Earth and head to the moon or on the Mars, you got the full brunt of radiation. And you can get, if there's a solar flare, some other event like that, it can be a a healthy dose. Maybe it isn't lethal, but it it, it would be significant in the astronaut's life. So we've solved, we think, the the muscle loss problem with the astronauts through exercise. We think we got a handle on the bone density, losing their bone in space. But the radiation, we don't know yet. Huh. do that. You can't put enough lead bricks around your spacecraft. It's not practical to do right. that. Maybe some of the ideas that are out there are creating an artificial magnetic field around your spacecraft, or maybe they do genetic screening and they determine one person is more resistant to radiation than somebody else. Or maybe they come up with some phar- pharmaceutical drugs that may be helpful for you know, mitigating the radiation exposure. But that is one of the toughest problems, hurdles yet, that we're going to have to cross okay, and solve and, that. And that isn't one I've heard a lot about. Or maybe it's just it doesn't capture the public imagination. Yeah, and, and maybe if there's no way to solve it, maybe you just have to take a risk. Huh? You know, we did that during Apollo. Jeez, you sound like an astronaut. There, yeah. I mean, sometimes you just have to take a risk. You try to protect... The crew members, the astronauts, from from everything that you can protect them from, but sometimes you just have to take a bit of a risk. Boy, did I, Apollo take risks? I they mean, they you, took risks. 50 when you years look back ago. at what they did, yep. and the guy's trying to joystick it down, and we're, we're not hearing from him, and you're like, oh my god, with minimal computer support. Yes, you know, very crude uh, computers from the time. They did uh, amazing things. So. 
I know it takes years to become an astronaut. Help us understand a little bit of your odyssey. You were 39 when you lifted off mid-career. Is, is that kind of late for an astronaut? No, you know, most astronauts get selected uh, these days when they're like 33, 34, 35. It's okay. a pretty narrow window. Okay. Some younger and some older, but the majority of them are in the mid-30s. And then you begin a three, four, five, six-year training program. So the first time you fly, typically right now, astronauts are in their late 30s, early 40s. So it's, it's very, very typical. Okay. And I know um, it was a dream of yours since you were a boy. It took you four attempts to get into astronaut school, a lot of setbacks. And I know you don't have time to explain the whole experience, but could you give us, uh, our listeners, a bit of an idea of your persistence to becoming an astronaut? Here you had your engineering degrees, you had your uh, doctorate from Cornell, experience at Bell Labs, but yet you were still going for the astronaut corps. Yeah. You know, once I finished, you know, Case and Cornell and I'm working for Bell Labs, then I finally said, okay, I, I met the requirements. I can I can start applying to become an astronaut, and NASA selects new groups of astronauts every three or four or five years. So, I waited two years after I finished college. They put out an announcement. I sent my application in. I was feeling really confident with my resume. I'm getting in, but nothing. I got turned down. Two years later, they had another astronaut selection. I says, well, I'll try again. They just missed me the first time, right? I I applied the second time and and got turned down. It wasn't even close in the competition. And it was at this point I realized, okay, I I don't have everything I need. I need to do more to get noticed by NASA. So being an engineer, I studied the data. I I looked at the backgrounds of the people that were successful getting in to see what do they have that I don't have? What am I missing? Yeah. And I noticed most of the astronauts they were selecting had flying experience. So I got my pilot's license. You did. So that had to take a while. It took me... uh, I worked on that over a year, year and a half okay. or so. Uh, put a lot of money in, into that, flying lessons. And okay. I got my instrument rating. Um, and I also noticed most of the astronauts I was selecting had some skydiving or parachuting experience. And none of this is a requirement to be an astronaut, but it, things that seemed to help. So I learned to do that. You started jumping out of planes. I did. Okay. And uh, then I taught a university course because I just noticed that seemed to be something NASA was looking for. <laughs> so I, I applied a few years later for the next astronaut selection now that I enhanced my background. And I made the group of 100 semifinalists. They brought me to the Johnson oh, Space Center. In that Houston. was the third attempt. That was the third attempt. Okay. And spent a week in Houston, most of that on a thorough medical exam. And I passed all the medical tests. And then there was a one-hour interview, and that went extremely well. At the end of that week, I thought that couldn't have gone any better for me. I went back to Bell Labs where I was working and just sat there and waited. And uh, three months later, I got a phone call, and they said, we didn't pick you. No thanks. Crushed? Crushed. I I remember hanging up the phone, and I was crying for 20 minutes. They just broken my heart. Ah. I think I was 32 years old at that time. And it's like, I got really close. They interviewed me. They got to know me, and they still said no. Mm. And I made a decision, okay, it's time to give up on this silly dream of, of mine. So... I went to bed thinking I'll get up in the morning and I'll put together a new plan for my career. And when I woke up that next morning, the very first thought that came in my head was, I still want to be an astronaut. So (laughs) I rolled up my sleeves. I I did some more research and noticed most of the people they were picking were individuals that already were working at the Johnson Space Center. So I quit my job. I drove from New Jersey down to Texas. I got a job with NASA as an engineer working on the space shuttle program. 
did that for three years. And then they had another astronaut selection, number four, sent my application in. I got called up for the medical testing and the interviews. Oh, my. And the fourth time, then I was successful getting in. So the lesson, the key lesson I've learned in my, my whole life is to never, never give up. Whatever dream you have, whatever goal you set, do not give up on it. I bet that resonates with the young people you talk to. Yeah, I, I share that experience. Uh, many young students, you know, they try once, they fail, they give up. My son was very much like that. Yeah. You know, his generation. And, and the message is, well, don't give up. You, you know, don't give just up. because you fail doesn't mean to give up. You know, you have to uh, Something else that, that, that you mentioned to the people you talked to last night was you said successful people learn from their failures. So not only did you not quit, but you kept trying different routes. Right. If, if you fail along the way and you don't do anything different, you think something, some miracle is going to happen and you'll be successful the next time, you know, that, that's not how it works. So I knew in between these astronaut selections, I needed to be better. Hmm. They turned me down. It wasn't because they just overlooked me. I wasn't good enough. So I knew I had to get better. And uh, I was really uh, conscious of the fact that if I get in there for an interview, the number one question would be, so what have you done in the last three years since uh-huh. we turned you down? And uh-huh. I wanted to be able to tick off. I learned to fly. I learned to skydive. I've taught a university course. <laughs> I learned to scuba dive. And I wanted to be able to tick those off for them. Uh, and, and that's what I tried to do each time. Did you learn to scuba dive? I learned that as well. Did they like that too? They like that. That's something we do training for spacewalks. Okay. We do a lot of underwater training. <laughs> so these are all things for students today, you know, learning Russian language because we're working with the Russians on the International Space Station. And oh. I tell young students, if I was your age, I would take a few geology courses because we're going to the moon and Mars ah. and, and to have a little bit of training in that area and let NASA know you're interested in geology. You help coach it. the Russians, the Russian and the American team. Didn't you? I worked in uh, Star City, Russia. That's a cosmonaut training center, very similar to our Johnson Space Center in in Houston. I I was a NASA manager there for a year, kind of coordinating the American astronauts that were over there training for space station missions. Okay. How is it working with them? I mean, it's a a different language, different culture, but are you guys all kind of the same when you you put on the space suit? Space is space, yeah. And, And it's really fascinating for me going over there, their training facilities, very, very similar. Mm. The design of spacesuits, very similar. Design of spacecraft and having valves and redundant valves and the safety mechanisms. You know, knowing very well the American valves and spacecraft and spacesuit designs, it made it that much easier to understand what the Russians were doing because there were a lot of commonalities between the two of us. Okay, because of course we don't always get along here on Earth, but up in space, is it pretty seamless? You know, we've been working with the Russians on the International Space Station for over 20 years. We've had astronauts up on the station for 20 years now, 365 days a year. And even though our countries battle politically down here on Earth, up in space, not an issue. Uh, It is really a joint international space station. 15 countries help build it. That's true. And if, if you have a fight with your partner, it's not like you can take your toys and go home. Like, we can't uh, take our oxygen and say, we're leaving, and then say, well, we're taking our energy, our, our solar panels, and it doesn't work like that. It, it is really one station, and it's a remarkable success of the International Space Station, how we can work peacefully in space. That's awesome. That's and I don't awesome. think that's something that gets a lot of attention. That will be the legacy of the space station, of how that many countries work together on one project, yeah. one goal, in a peaceful manner, 
there's disagreements, but we have meetings. We, we, we settle that out in a civilized manner. You know, it never gets to war in space. Nothing like that. Boy, that's science. Science, science. and engineering. Yep. We're going to pause for a moment here for a word from our sponsor, the Case Alumni Association. Thinkbox Radio is brought to you by the Case Alumni Association, which represents the engineering, science, and math graduates of Case Western Reserve University. We're the oldest independent alumni association of engineering and applied science graduates in America. Have you heard of us? If not, you've heard of our graduates. Case grads include Henry Dow, the founder of Dow Chemical, Frank Rudy, the inventor of the Nike Airsole, Paul Buchheit, the creator of Gmail, and Jeanette Griselli-Brown, the first female director of corporate research at BP America. At Case, we're proud of our spirit of discovery and innovation, which is why we support ThinkBox, the world-class innovation center at the Case School of Engineering. Yeah, a couple of firsts. I wanted to see if these were true. Did you, you had the first pizza in space? This it was a secret until you just blurted that out. <laughs> so yeah, um, we're allowed to carry a sandwich with us in our spacesuit for launch. We may be on the launch pad for three or four hours, depending on the weather. So in case you get hungry on launch morning, you have a sandwich. And typically you take a turkey sandwich or a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, sure. whatever you want. <laughs> and on my third mission, I just asked, hey, can I get a slice of pizza? I'm a Cleveland guy. I love pizza. And they, they looked at me funny and they said, yeah, we can do that. So the, the NASA staff made a little personal pizza, double pepperoni. And I had that in my pocket, and we flew it in space. And um, what year was that? 1997. 1997. First Remember pizza that, in folks. Space. And if it comes up trivia night, it was double pepperoni. All right. And then you took stadium mustard. I did into space. Yeah, you know we're allowed to take a few personal items up with us. You know, yeah. I would take a necklace for my mom, something for my wife and my brothers. I, now that's I took, very um, Cleveland. Pennants up there from Case Western Reserve University. You know, so we take things along with us. And I wanted to take up a little piece of Cleveland, so I had the idea of, of getting some of the little packs of stadium mustard, like small ketchup packs, but of, of stadium mustard. So the, the NASA <laughs> Food Group they contacted Stadium Mustard folks here in Cleveland, and they sent down the packs. And on my thir- second mission, it was back in 1995, had 10 packs of Stadium Mustard with me. And boy, that that was good. Oh, it was not good. It was great. And that is all right. That is great. And you might cause some controversy with the ballpark mustard fans, but I would go with the stadium. Uh, the stadium is out of this world. We say. And you actually had a hot dog. I had some hot dogs. These are uh, military ration hot dogs. They're not the best ones in the world, but we took those up there. Um, But stadium mustard is good on anything. It doesn't have to be a hot dog. Smart thinking. All right. So listen, I want to switch gears here a little bit and go into some of the uh, opportunity space offers for research. Can you talk a little bit about some of the science you've been involved in on a shuttle that you couldn't have done here on Earth? I know you've done like hundreds of microgravity experiments, but are there any that, that stand out for their uniqueness or their audacity? You know, the, we've done a lot of work on combustion, looking how fires burn in space. Mm. Everybody on Earth is familiar with the shape of a candle flame coming up to a point. Yes. That's from hot air rising. It draws the flame upward into a point. In space... We have zero gravity, zero convection, so hot air doesn't rise and a flame isn't drawn up to a point. It burns perfectly spherical. A little droplet of fuel will have a, a, a you know, round, perfectly spherical fireball burning. And so we can do some fundamental studies of combustion and how things are burning, trying to determine you know, how do you get incomplete combustion, what's happening when you get 
pollutants and other soot particles, things like that. So I think some of the work we've done on combustion up on the space shuttle and now today on the International Space Station, you know, has uh, really, I don't know, opened uh, new areas of research for an, an understanding of, of combustion in space. But we do almost any branch of science you think of, we've done experiments under zero gravity conditions, how liquids behave, how plants grow. We've grown uh, human tissues. Up and why in do space. you want to do it under those conditions? You, what can we learn there that you can't learn with gravity? You know, here on Earth, uh, if you have a liquid, gravity dominates. You put okay. liquid on a on your table, it flattens out into a pancake. Gravity is the dominating force. In space, gravity is taken away, and there's new forces, surface tension forces, that drive the liquid into a ball, into a sphere. So we can study forces that you can study them a bit here on Earth, but it's much better up in space because you're only looking at surface tension effects, things like that. It's really hard to simulate zero gravity here. We can do it in a drop tower. We do that at the Glenn Research Center. They can get one to two seconds of zero gravity. I was was shocked at how primitive that is. They just drop drop a big tube down a In a a vacuum, yeah. And we have parabolic airplanes that go up and down, and and we can get 20 to 30 seconds of zero gravity in, in each one of those, you know, parabolas. But uh, you know the research that we're doing up there now, it's all focused on, on zero gravity. A lot of it is basic fundamental research. We take up uh, jellyfish. I had jellyfish on one of my flights to see how they behave in, in zero gravity. I've been up there with fruit flies. Fruit flies have a little characteristic. They jump around. And if they're happy, they jump in one manner. If they're scared, they jump another way. And, and scientists have studied that and they wanted to see how do they behave in zero gravity. What practical use does that have on Earth? Yes. You know, probably none, but this is basic research. This is what we do all the time at universities and research institutions. And then in the future, some of that basic research that we learn, you know, transitions into applied research. Okay, so you're building that foundation of knowledge, sure. Yeah, and just on the human body, we do experiments on the astronauts. You know, when we come back from space, our muscles are weaker, our bones are weaker, uh, very similar to senior citizens. Uh, astronauts are dizzy when they get back. Their inner ear isn't working properly. Yeah. And so a lot of what we learn up in space, you know, it has applications here on Earth as well. Okay, okay. Hey, Don, in your talks, you talk about first looking back on Earth and seeing that uh, thin, misty strip, our atmosphere, and how fragile it looks as it separates us from that vastness of dark space. And I'm wondering, um, because you see that, has it, it changed your view of the Earth? Uh, it definitely. I think every astronaut that has looked out the window to see the Earth from space, it, it, they're forever changed. How so? Uh, You know, two ways. First is just looking back at the Earth, you see the paper-thin blue line, our atmosphere around the planet. On the surface here, I look up at the blue sky, it looks like it goes on forever and ever. Mm. From space, I look at the atmosphere edge on, and it literally looks like a paper-thin layer. And you just see that, and it's like, wow, that, that's all that's protecting us here on planet Earth. I've uh, flown over South America in many orbits. This is even 25 years ago, and saw the cutting and burning of the rainforest down there. And that's been in the news a lot in the last year. But even 25 years ago, there was massive cutting and burning. And nearly the entire continent of South America was under a smoke pall wow. on my first flight. And I, I'd heard about the, the, the cutting and burning, but I thought, you know, it's affecting some small city, state, country. Yeah. But here, no, it's affecting the whole continent and probably the whole planet then. I saw dust storms coming off the Western Sahara, and the dust got carried 
all the way across the Atlantic, uh, fizzled out around the Bahamas. So you start to see some of the global yeah. processes. I saw uh, rivers choked with mud from cutting of rainforest, you know, in Madagascar, uh, where it was used to be covered with these teak mahogany hardwood you oh, know sure. forests they've cut them all down with all this erosion it's just choking the rivers um and harbors things like that you see the impact of humans even 200 miles above the earth boy if we could all see that view from space um would we all be environmentalists everybody everybody would be and and one of my first thoughts i had when i was looking back out the window was oh I wish my wife could see this, my brother, my mom, my friends. If I could switch places with people, I would give them 15 seconds yes. of my window time, you know, switch places one at a time. And it would only take 15 seconds. You looking out the window, you would gasp, oh, wow. And, you know, and then you come back and you'd be forever changed. We need our leaders to see that. Take a president up there. there there's you? been proposals to send, uh, you know, world leaders up there. Another way that it changes you going to space, not only seeing how fragile the planet is, but you come back to Earth with a different view of how you fit in on the planet. I grew up here in Cleveland, so I used to tell people I'm from Cleveland, and this is how I identified myself. Today, if you ask me, hey, Don, where are you from? I'm going to say... I'm from Earth. <laughs> no and it, kidding. It no longer matters to me what city, state, huh. country, continent, religion, language. That that doesn't matter. Like we're all Earthlings here, and we all have to get along and take care of this planet because this is all there is. There's no other place to go. You know, in the whole universe, this is the only place we know where life can exist, for sure. There may be other places, yeah. but we don't know about them. Yeah, we sure don't know how to get to them. You're right. We don't know how to get there, and we don't even know if they even exist yet, for sure. Wow. Yeah, it's a powerful message. So, Don, the Mars generation, are a lot more of them going to be traveling in space? You know, the, the Mars generation, our young students uh, today, they're growing up in a great time, uh, not only with the NASA missions to the moon and Mars coming up, but we've got a number of commercial companies that are going to be sending people up to space, space tourists and other space businesses. You know, uh, Elon Musk with SpaceX, Jeff Bezos with Blue Origin, and Richard Branson, Virgin Galactic. These are just three examples of commercial companies that are just on the verge of setting, sending uh, space tourists up. So I think it's gonna open the floodgates. People will have an opportunity to go see what I saw. And I'm all in favor, space tourism, go up there, see what I saw, it'll come back to Earth and you help join the, you know, the, uh, the battle of protecting our planet here. Won't that be a different perspective? Wow. Yeah, it's, and the more people that can get up there again, the, the better off I think our whole planet is going to be. So for young students, great opportunities, you know, not only with NASA and government programs, but the commercial sector as well. And, you know, I would imagine in a decade or two, we've got little space hotels up there. There's a company, Bigelow Aerospace, out in Nevada, and, and they are building inflatable Habitats. We have one of them up on the space station right now, and they have proposals to build them like a tourist destination. Go up. On the moon? No, not on the moon. Maybe in Earth orbit, maybe in uh, orbit around the moon. But may, yeah, maybe on, on the moon too, you know, in the future. But uh, they'll be doing uh, trips like that as well. So I wish I was the Mars generation. Yeah. Because the future is, yeah, is pretty exciting. Yeah, it does sound fascinating. Yeah, I just went around the Earth. You know, they'll be able to do a lot of amazing things. Yeah, well, congratulations in your roles in making this happen, Don. And thanks for joining us today. Everybody, this is retired astronaut uh, Don Thomas. And as you can see, he's still hoping we follow him into space. 
And that concludes another episode of Think Box Radio, stories inspired by America's leading college innovation center. You can find past episodes on our website, casealum.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, our motto at Case Western Reserve University is think beyond the possible.